It's Sunday, May 12th. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. Here's some of the news stories we've been watching this week. I acted with integrity. I acted ethically. He tried to destroy the reputation and career of the person who stood up to him. All we got so far from the Liberals is a bunch of war-owed Aussie jets. Our process to procure 88 fighter jets will be open, fair, and transparent. Paul Manley just had a landslide victory. The Canadians are really preoccupied about climate change. Our U.S. ordered arrest, one guided by political considerations and tactics, not by the rule of law. We build allies, we build relationships, we are constructively engaging in the world. If this government isn't willing to stand up to China when two Canadians are unlawfully imprisoned and billions of dollars in trade is under attack, it never will. It was set to be the high-stakes trial that would embarrass the Liberal government and threaten its re-election prospects. Vice Admiral Mark Norman was accused of leaking cabinet secrets about a multi-million dollar shipbuilding contract. A who's who of powerful Liberal politicians were expected to be called to the stand during the trial, which would have run during the election campaign. But on Wednesday, the Crown suddenly dropped the case. At all times, I acted with integrity, I acted ethically, and I acted in the best interest of the Royal Canadian Navy, the Canadian Forces, and ultimately the people of Canada. Vice Admiral Norman has been through a great deal. His family has been through a great deal. Uh, there is a ship, a supply ship, that is operational, on time and under budget, thanks in part to Vice Admiral Norman. Uh, I think it's time to say sorry to him. Joining me now is Minister of Public Services and Procurement, Carla Qualtrough. Welcome to the show, Minister. Thanks for having me. So this has been a tough week for the government with the Norman case having the charge of state. Do you think that your government owes Mark Norman an apology for what he's been put through? Well, I can't imagine what, um, what Mr. Norman has gone through over the past two years. It's a very difficult process to have gone through what he's gone through. But I think the important message here is that the process was completely independent from our government. All the decisions around proceeding with the charge, deciding to stay the charge, that was done independently. I think now what we as a government need to do is, as we've decided, and as I, a decision I very much agree with, is to pay his legal expenses and to have a very immediate conversation about his future with the military. But the government has apologized for a lot of things since taking power. Why not apologize to Mark Norman? Well, I would say that, you know, it's more that we have to be careful about the independence of this process, Mercedes. We can't be in the business of apologizing for independent organizations doing their jobs. Like, we're really committed to having stayed far away from this as much as we possibly could have. But what about the Prime Minister coming out before Mark Norman was even charged and saying it was going to end up before the courts? That was exceptional, and it led a lot of people to believe that there was political influence in the process. I know. I know that that's how it was perceived, and I think, in hindsight, not the best framing of words, I can assure you. But, but at the end of the day, there wasn't political interference here. This, the system was completely run independently. Those were we all committed to that. We all knew that Canadians were watching and expecting us to to actually just let this let this come out as it may. I didn't find out about this until the news broke. Why did your government refuse to release key documents to the defense, including that 60-page briefing written by the former clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick, to Prime Minister Trudeau that would have been critical to his defense? And the defense kept saying that it was the Prime Minister's office and the Privy Council office that were not releasing documents or telling them there were no documents about such a high-profile case. 
I think that question is best, better answered by the Minister of Justice, but I can tell you from our part, there were six to 8,000 documents that were in play. We complied as a department. We got things to people as quickly as we possibly could. Um, decisions around redactions are not, were not politically made whatsoever. They're made according to a long, well-established process of what is considered cabinet confidence, what solicitor's client. It's super complicated. There's leaks every day in Ottawa. There's certainly cabinet leaks. This is not unprecedented. But I have never seen the RCMP called in to investigate before. And the government is saying we respect journalists and journalism, but there's a leak to the press. And the next thing you know, the Mounties are all over it. And there's people who believe that because senior officials in this government are close to the Irvings, that is what motivated the decision to call in the police. Why were the police called in this case, but not in other cases like SNC-Lavalin? Um, to the best of my knowledge, and you can appreciate, I was not close to this at all when this happened. I wasn't in my current role. I was not on any of the committees of cabinet that, that dealt with procurement. So it's, it's hard for me to say. Um, as I understand it, um, the decision was made independently by the RCMP to pursue this investigation. But PCO handed the investigation to the RCMP. I'm not the best person to ask that question. I apologize. But don't you think the government owes Canadians some answers? I mean, this is a lot of money and a multi-year investigation that has come to nothing. I think what we need to be clear with Canadians about is the complexity of this process and the fact that this took um, took a long time to work away to, to this. But it wasn't our decision. It was not our decision to pursue the charge. It was not our decision to investigate it, and it wasn't our decision to stay it. Looking at another procurement issue, the F-35s, um, your government swore you would not buy the F-35s. You said you were going to put that money into the Navy in your campaign platform. Now we have bought these additional F-18s to tide us over. The parliamentary budget officer says it cost $1.1 billion. There was a report out last week saying that the Americans are furious over how this is unfolding. Why not just buy the F-35s four years into this process? Well, we committed to have—first of all, we committed not to sole-source the F-35 and instead to pursue an open, fair, transparent, competitive process to get the best um, jet. Now, that could end up being any one of four jets right now. We don't know how the process will, will play out, but what we've done over the past year and a half is work with suppliers—less than a year and a half, I guess—work with suppliers to make sure that they know what our technical requirements are, um, what we're, how we're going to evaluate costing, and how we're going to ensure that there are economic benefits for the entire country. But if all of our major allies have bought the F-35 and you're saying you want Canada to operate globally in yep. the world, why not buy the same aircraft as all of our allies? Well, and that's why interoperability is a key kind of required function within any plane that we ultimately get. But if this is the best plane for Canada, this will be the plane we buy. But we don't know what the best plane is yet. The process, we have to let kind of the technical experts see this through and determine, based on technical requirements, cost and economic benefits, what we end up with. And I don't know the answer the to that. The experts all say the F-35 is the only plane that would be able to do expeditionary operations because of the developments with radar and everything else. The concern that I think some are, are having at this point, after looking at those documents and comments from the Americans who are very upset over Canada not buying the F-35 at this point, is there a risk to our sovereignty at this point? Because if the Americans are not confident that Canada can defend its own territory, there's a risk that they move in and do that for us. Well, I don't think we're going to in any way jeopardize our sovereignty through this process. In fact, I can guarantee you that we're not. We are definitely committed to buying a plane that will operate in the north, and that's a, that's a key technical requirement of whatever plane we end up with um, and moving forward. But no, there won't be any kind of risk to our sovereignty. Minister, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to congratulate all the candidates who, who ran in it. Is that Canadians are really preoccupied about climate change.
Welcome back. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the Green Party win in a B.C. by-election last week. In less than a year, the Green Party has picked up provincial seats in Ontario, New Brunswick, and recently became the official opposition in Prince Edward Island. From protest vote to party of choice, what's driving the Green Rise? Joining me now is Federal Green Party leader Elizabeth May. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thanks, Mercedes. Great to be here. Well, you've had a tremendous week, month, year, really, <laughs> and there's all this building support for the Green Party. It used to be just the party of environmentalists, but that seems to be changing. What do you think is changing that is causing Canadians to look at you as a party to turn to? Well, of course, the more that Greens are elected, the more that Greens will be elected, you know, so that with Greens, right now there's 17 elected Greens across the country at provincial level, and only two of us federally. But as voters get exposed to us and what we do when we're elected, whether it's David Kuhn as leader in New Brunswick or Peter Bevan Baker, who now heads the official opposition in Prince Edward Island, and Andrew Weaver in BC and Mike Schreiner in Ontario, I think what they realize over and over again is that the most sensible answers to tough questions are coming from Green Party elected people. Because we listen to the question, we do our homework, we work hard, and we represent a party that is concerned with what's best for Canada and does our homework and comes up with what we hope are the best answers, recognizing that, you know, the best answers come when we work by consensus. And, you know, there's good answers from other parties, too. We just want to stop the endless, you know, bun fights between parties and actually work together. So that is a message that I think appeals to Canadians who would rather see their elected representatives getting things done than just, you know, kind of um, having those ridiculous... Um, Oh, I just, I just hate the fighting. I know that sounds ridiculous in politics. For someone say, for, for a partisan politician. I hate, that is an unusual perspective. I don't like partisan politics. I like working together, and I like the feeling that when we're elected, we go to work. How do you think that's going to work with other parties? I mean, they've traditionally not attacked the Greens, but that's because you weren't really a threat. Now, particularly with the NDP, potentially you're a threat. You might have to fight. They have attacked us in the past. I mean, bear in mind that the NDP and the Conservatives worked together in several elections to keep me out of the leaders' debates. That was a really big blow to us when, you know, it was in uh, 2015 that I was invited to the national televised English language leaders' debates. But when the Conservatives and the NDP decided that they wouldn't participate in the debates. The debates got cancelled. So they haven't exactly been <laughs> friendly. Uh, and we've sustained some attacks. But you're right. Uh, when we're considered a party that isn't going to play a big role in the seat count, we tend to be left out, and it tends that people don't look hard at our policies. But I'm proud of the policies that we've had for, for many elections, because we have a full program. It's called Vision Green. Every election, we bring out a fully costed platform, which other parties don't do, showing where we'll take the budget three years out. And we'll be, we have, in the past, submitted our policies and our budget to the Parliamentary Budget Office. We're doing it again in this election, so that we can say clearly to Canadians that this isn't just what we're promising without knowing where the money's going to come from. We've done our homework, and we won't be... I can tell you right now, we, we still don't have the, the PBO approval for our fully-costed budget. But as leader of the party, I won't go into an election campaign without being able to say to voters, you can look at our budget. It's been reviewed by the Parliamentary Budget Office. They're independent and nonpartisan, and they're prepared to say that this is sound as financial planning, as fiscal policy. So that's that's a kind of a, a, a position that I'm comfortable in. I don't mind the idea of additional scrutiny, because we're prepared for it. How many of your votes do you think are coming from traditionally NDP voters? 
I don't know. I, I know that in Nanaimo Ladysmith, where we just won with a, a, a substantial majority, uh, not a majority of the total, but certainly the plurality, 37 percent uh, was what Paul Manley received in getting elected. And the other parties, the closest was under 25 percent for the Conservatives, and then the NDP just a bit behind them, and the Liberals way back with 11 percent. I think a lot of that vote was people, what did come from traditional New Democrats who saw in Paul Manley and voting Green a chance to really send a message. Let's face it, in a by-election, you do get to send a message. And it's already resonated. I mean, that clip from the prime minister, the day after the by-election, uh, they're talking about climate change. Uh, so we did have, we will have an impact. But we, t we, t we appeal to voters across the spectrum. And quite honestly, the voters that I most want to attract are the ones who are so disgusted with politics that they don't vote at all. And the disillusioned voter is often uh, the larger number of votes than those that go to the other parties. Like in, in 2011, if the number of voters were able to elect a government just by their actions, we would have had a majority government called the We Stayed Home Party. So, <laughs> Very true. And it, it, there have been things in politics this year that have gotten people more engaged and more involved, mm -hmm. in particular what happened with SNC-Lavalin yeah. and, and Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott. I know you've made entreaties to both of those women. Mm -hmm. What have you offered them from the Green Party to try to convince them to join you? Oh, we haven't offered anything, I mean, in terms of, like, a perk. I mean, joining the Green Party is hard work, and all I can offer them is is the chance that they stand on their own two feet with integrity, and I never tell them what to do. I think back to what happened with your party and the policies on BDS and mm -hmm. Israel. You are grassroots, but that means that there could be some voices there that are very unpalatable to the broader voting population. Mm -hmm. Well, that policy was repealed by our convention, and the reason it was was that the uh, we went back to our traditional approach. It was only one convention kind of an experiment, it was a bad experiment, that tried running the, the decision-making through Robert's Rules of Orders, uh, quick votes, majority rules, and that's it. We don't make decisions that way, and we've gone back to our traditional, it's enshrined in our Constitution, that we make decisions by consensus. And when you work towards consensus, you don't have that problem. We work hard to find where is their middle ground, how can we work together. So we repealed BDS. Uh, I wasn't comfortable with it. Obviously, I was prepared to step down as leader had we kept it, which was a tough, tough period. But uh, it was it wasn't so much what what the party had decided, because we do listen to our grassroots, as that I knew that decision-making process had violated our own values because we departed from consensus. One last question for you. Do you think the federal government should apologize to Mark Norman? I'm looking forward to when Vice Admiral Norman tells us his side of the story, but it looks from here as though he was put through hell, and now there's not a case to be met. Charges are withdrawn. Uh, I, I would really, uh, I, I, I want to hear his side of the story, but my instincts are that the government owes him an apology. Elizabeth May, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mercedes. U.S. President Donald Trump has slapped another $200 billion of tariffs on Chinese goods. China is vowing to retaliate. But meanwhile, back here in Canada, we find ourselves stuck in the middle after arresting Chinese national Meng Wanzhou at America's request. China hit back by arbitrarily detaining two Canadians, sentencing two more Canadians to death, and it has stopped buying large amounts of Canadian canola. Joining me now to talk about this diplomatic debacle is Paul Evans from the University of British Columbia's Institute on Asian Research. Paul, you have been following Canada-China relations for a long time. You're an expert in this. 
Would you say this is the worst you've ever seen the relationship? Well, I think it's certainly the worst since Tiananmen Square, and there are other signs that this is the kind of the hardest moment in uh, uh, bilateral diplomatic relations since we established diplomatic relations in 1970. We're in the midst of a hailstorm, and there are some signs that it is it is not slowing up, and that this. This could be a, a, a season of, of some further escalations on both sides. How would you assess the government's performance on this file? Well, they have been certainly caught in a situation not of their own making. We've been thrown under the bus by the United States in its conflict with China and with Huawei. Um, and I think that there are some who are trying to try, tie Canada to the back of that American confrontation bus. What has really happened now is that with the anger that has resulted from the uh, arrest of the two Michaels, some of the other Chinese actions, that uh, increasing number of Canadians want to get onto that confrontation bus with the United States against China. So this is not just a blip, but is a, a really opening a new chapter in a relationship that at the moment is, uh, is at a pretty dark ebb. I know the Conservative opposition leader, Andrew Scheer, is saying we need to take a tougher line with China. We need to reset. Do you think that that tougher approach is the way to go? Well, I think that the um, approach Mr. Scheer is taking is um, out of kind of the Stephen Harper playbook of 2006, a heavy emphasis on freedom, democracy, human rights, rule of law, the differences in our political system, uh, some of the anger with some of Chinese activities. Uh, in the context now of a, a deteriorating relationship between the United States and China, Mr. Scheer is pretty close to a, uh, to a call for a cold war with China, uh, restricting uh, some kinds of economic interactions, pushing back, but fundamentally lining up with our friend, the United States, and like-minded allies in, uh, in pressuring and distancing ourselves from China. So this is, um, is something even stronger than Mr. Harper's perspective of 10 years ago. Uh, and it's premised on the idea that um, China is an adversary uh, and that the United States is our friend. Uh, maybe not under Mr. Trump, but as uh, 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 in the future, post Mr. Trump, that um, we can work with the U.S. as the solution to most of our challenges economically and in security terms. Is this a new Cold War? Well, I'm afraid there are elements of it. Um, we certainly have anger on both sides, China angry with Canada, Canada Canadians very angry with China. Uh, we have, um, we're facing some big issues around technology, how far this is a, a normal commercial relationship or technology issues are really matters of national security. Uh, it's not a Cold War like the, like the Cold War we knew with the Soviet Union because of the interaction of the economies. But in terms of it being framed as a battle of social systems, um, our system versus theirs, different history, different traditions, different institutions, it has elements of that Cold War. And in an era of globalization, this is very new territory when economies are interconnected, but their political systems seem to be crashing against each other. 
There's a lot of concern in the Canadian business community that this is quite damaging to Canadian businesses and to Canadian agriculture. So far, they've hit pork, canola, and obviously the Canadians who have been jailed or sentenced to death. But what other areas do you think the Chinese might strike out at Canada in? Well, there'd be um, uh, tourism, education exchanges, that kind of thing. I, I think, Mercedes, the biggest risk at this moment is a U.S.-China all-out trade war. Uh, and uh, because it is not just about trade, it's about geopolitics behind it, uh, it's about a technology war. But if the United States and China cannot reach an agreement soon, this has consequences for Canadian exports. We may get some short-term advantages, but the system is cracking. Uh, and if that general trading system, WTO rules and other things don't apply, Canada is really home alone in a world where we don't have friends in China and we don't have friends in the United States. This, I think, is the worst scenario. Uh, so, ironically, we wish those bilateral uh, deals between the United States and China can be struck, even if it is going to have some negative consequences for some of our agricultural and other products. Is it damaging to Canada's position that we don't have an ambassador in Beijing right now? I think at the official level, government to government, we're pretty much frozen. Um, and that um, not having an ambassador is a problem. Uh, we have a very capable acting person, but the channels are frozen. Right now, we're trying to open up other channels, some business people who can talk, academics. Um, we're, we're, what makes the relationship so difficult now is that we are not in high-level dialogue, so that when we are um, discussing whether we want to discuss matters like the canola problem or other things, right now, the channels are frozen. And um, it's going to take, um, I think, a concerted effort on both sides to manage this, to reduce the damage and the escalations before we can get back into a chapter of significant cooperation activities. Perhaps time for the Prime Minister to call. I'm sure that'll be on the table and debated next week here in Ottawa. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. Wonderful speaking with you, Mercedes. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can check us out online at thewestblock.ca. Happy Mother's Day. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block.